summer series joy as we journey through the book of Philippians. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, you can turn to, to chapter 3. Um, we're going to be there for a little bit. We'll hit on chapter 4 and, and a number of other scriptures. And we do have them up on the screen as well, and so to help you out there. Um, but I, t- I titled today's message, Joy Through Right Thinking. Joy Through Right Thinking. And, and as I worked through the message, it, it could have easily have also been called Joy in Citizenship. And so as you, we go through the message this morning, um, you'll pick up on why I say that. Um, we're going to start with verse 17 um, in chapter 3 in just a little bit. But again, if you want to make your way there. Well, many of you know that my husband Pat and I lived in the cities um, for three years while I was finishing up school for the ministry. And and it was, it was a very interesting journey. Um, we moved from living on in our home on 40 acres to living in an apartment that would fit. It was a studio apartment, so it would fit just about in our living room, dining room area. And we, this apartment sat um, on a apartment complex that was 22 acres and had 600 apartments in it. And, I, and we kind of thought, why? Oh, because God asked us to. That's why. Okay. So we, that's what we did. And, and out of those 600 apartments, there was 24 different ethnic groups represented in that complex. And so we had an opportunity to be exposed to a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. Um, We uh, visited with people from Mexico, from Latvia, from uh, Argentina, Bosnia, India. And that that complex at at that time was really high concentration of of Indians native to India. And, And in that, it, it was it was interesting because you'd hear all these different languages, and and so when we would travel back up here to our home, God allowed us to keep our home while we were going to school, and and in that we'd travel back up, and we knew we were nearing home when we were only hearing English again, and and otherwise I would joke I'd never hear a foreign language north of Garrison unless somebody's speaking in tongues, um, and so I found that very interesting as we we made that journey back and forth. But, but in that, um, we learned how different different cultures really were. And India, out of all of those that, that we were exposed to, seemed to be in the most contrast. Um, citizens of India have a different family structure in that in their homes, they quite often have three generations. And we got a chance to know this one Indian woman quite well. In fact, she came and and stayed with us uh, a weekend when we were up at the house. And she was just puzzled why it is that we didn't have our parents living with us. (laughs) I hear a chuckle in the room because you're like, hmm. They figure their elderly parents should live with them. Now, to clue you in, elderly meant like at least, you know, 60. (laughs) And I'm like, Americans, are you kidding me? Nobody wants to have their independence changed like that. No, people want their own space. I, our parents, okay, my parents live 300 yards to the east from our home, and Pat's parents live two miles to the west. And you know what? They could not imagine moving in with us. That is close enough for them. To live with us would be like no way. 
And I find it interesting that even though in, in India, when the elderly parents move in with the kids, that um, the elderly parents are the ones who, who rule the home instead of the next generation down who are footing the bill for it. And you're like, this is just very interesting. They also, um, well, let me just say, in, in, in that close of quarters at the apartment complex, I kind of wondered about the parenting. Now, I'm not, I was not the perfect parent by any means. But um, they apparently didn't really do a whole lot of, of disciplining or guiding their children in growing up. It was kind of a, well, whatever they need to do to whether it be use of lungs in these tight quarters or running up and down the halls or looking at an expanse of, of canvas on the wall. Now, I'm artistic, and, and that appeals to me too, but only if I own the wall um, should I be writing on said wall. Um, kind of like the teens, they're going to get permission to do so. Well, the little Indian kids, they would write all over. Now, I'm not, I'm not dissing the Indian culture. I'm just saying this, this was different um, from what our culture typically is. And cooking was very interesting. Um, we use pressure cookers in the U.S., right? Okay, I remember my, my grandma doing her chickens in there. She'd add water to it and whatnot. Well, that's kind of being replaced by Instapot now here in the U.S. Well, Indians, they put oil in their pressure cookers. So imagine five minutes of exhausting oil um, through your pressure cooker, what your kitchen's going to look like. It was just crazy. It's like I don't understand the the different cooking. Why would that happen? But we uh, firsthand got a chance to to deal with that because Pat was on the maintenance team and uh, I was a cleaner there. So yeah, got a first firsthand look at that. But again, I got a chance to visit um, with with a lot of different Indians. I rode the the Metro Transit bus um, for those three years and going to school. And I was visiting with a man on the way home to the complex one night and. And he was talking about, in India, that traffic lights and, and uh, the laws and, and whatnot of, of the land, specifically in regards to traffic, are really just suggestions in India. And, and I'm like, so exactly how does that work? There's a stoplight, but it's just a suggestion. And, and he said, you know, well, they have horns on their vehicles, and they're not afraid to use them. And, and so it's just all this noise. And... and, and if you, if you look at, at India, do any little bit of research just on the noise level of their country, they actually say it's, it's considered a health danger because their noise level is so elevated that it causes high blood pressure, insomnia, stress, heart problems, and, and all of that. And, and when that, that Indian man was telling me um, about this, and he's, he's visiting with me, he goes, it's really quiet here. And I'm like, we're in downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> It is not quiet. You have no concept of quiet. Now, you might be wondering, why am I, I talking about all of this? Why? And again, it's not to criticize the Indian culture. They, they just live differently. It's not to take up the hot topic of immigration, whether it be legal or illegal. That's, that's not what this morning is about. What it is about, though, is it's to demonstrate that our citizenship makes a difference in how we think. So whether you live in the United States, India, or other, any other country in the world, people think differently in regards to where their citizenship is. And how much more when it comes to our spiritual citizenship will that impact how we live 
And part of how we live, of course, is driven by how we think. And so we want to explore this concept of joy through right thinking. Joy through right thinking. So before we read the word this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Power to change our lives. Power to to help us to to have right thinking. And so, Lord, as, as we go through what you have given us this morning, Lord, we just pray that you would take it and you would apply it to our lives. Help us to to live, Lord, more fully for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul starts off in in chapter 3, verse 17 with, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. Have you ever considered as you opened your Bible what a treasure you hold? Have you ever given that a thought as you turn the pages and you find exactly what you're looking for that day, you're lo- you f- find comfort, you find encouragement, you find you know direction and counsel. And then have you ever considered what your Christian walk would look like without the New Testament teachings at your disposal? No app on your phone, no, no New Testament to read at all. And the reason I ask those questions is because the early church didn't have the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they they weren't written yet. None of the letters to the epistles um, were at least bound at that time. They they were starting to be written, of course. We know that. And and so they they didn't have Jesus' teachings, though, written down for them to read and to study. And, of course, they didn't have the book of Acts because they were the book of Acts. So they didn't have that to go by. And so the early church had to rely on people like Paul, people who had spent time with Jesus. Of course, we know Paul spent it differently, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 9 if you want, and I encourage you to do so. But, but Paul is saying here, um, pattern your lives after mine, because I and, and, and other followers, the apostles, have know what it is that Jesus is wanting us to live like how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And so he's saying, pattern your lives after mine. Our lives are practical application to Jesus' instructions. And though, even though Paul experienced it again in an abnormal way, he's still exhorting the church in Philippi, use my life as an example to follow. And I think if anything, we should grab from this one verse as a renewed appreciation for the New Testament. So that in our personal growth, we have Jesus' life and teaching at our fingertips. Let's not waste such a blessing. Let's be reading God's word. Continuing with verse 18, we learn why Paul had such an emphasis on following a healthy, mature model for a follower of Christ. He says, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Paul's giving a warning to the church in Philippi. It wasn't that they had wrong doctrine. It's just that they were being exposed to people who were not living um, as they ought to. They were enemies of the cross of Christ. So let me explain just a little bit about this group of people that Paul is writing about. 
They were called antinomians. And they were people who would profess that they knew Jesus. But they took Jesus' grace out of context. And they thought then that, or applied that grace as thinking that they could live any way that they wanted to. The immorality wasn't an issue. They could boast about these things. And of course, we know the scripture says that we are not to boast in anything but Christ. Um, and we are supposed to live moral lives. But they were taking grace somewhere where God never intended it to be. And so um, they were they were had the wrong thinking and it was leading them to live lives that were living with their fleshly desires instead of following the spirit. They were using grace as a license to live immorally and act any way that they desired. They only thought of their own gain. They only thought about this life. And again, they boasted of things that they should have been ashamed of. So Paul writes that they're really enemies of the cross of Christ. They really don't know Jesus through a personal relationship. Their thinking is not being influenced by Christ, but rather the world and their flesh. So spiritually, they're citizens of the world. And Paul's grieved that they're headed down this road of destruction, as we should be grieved for those that don't know Christ as well. Spiritually, there are still citizens like that in the world today. People who do not know Christ, that their conduct is from their flesh. Their minds are depraved, resulting in wrong thinking. And of course, we know that wrong thinking leads to destruction. And their thinking is really demonstrating their citizens of the world. They believe that they know Christ. They may even attend church. But their thinking shows that they're enemies of the cross. Their citizenship is still of the world. But Paul reaffirms the believers in Philippi and the true believers everywhere in generations um, these words. It says, or in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says, But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. That's a powerful statement. As believers, if we had paper of passports, ours would have heaven embossed on them. And again, as believers, we may not have those physical, tangible passports in our hands, but our citizenship in heaven is more real and rock solid than our U.S. citizenship is. Now, I think that's reason for joy. Amen? Just as citizens of different countries act and think differently, as citizens of heaven, we will act and think differently than citizens of this world. But thinking differently does not necessarily come easily. And there's a reason. There's a spiritual battle taking place. Many of us are aware of this. As believers in Christ, we have an adversary. And he has tactics um, and ways in which he uh, tries to come against those that believe. And Beth Moore writes this in her book, Praying God's Word. She says, if or in any warfare waged by the enemy against the individual believer, the primary battlefield is in the mind. The goal of our warfare, as stated in 2 Corinthians 10.5, is to steal back our thought life and take it captive to Christ instead. 
The enemy's chief target is the mind because it's the most effective way to influence behavior or to influence behavior and then is to influence our thinking because we think things and then becomes comes the behavior. Our minds are the control centers of our entire beings, she says. Of course, the enemy knows far better than, than we do that nothing is bigger and more powerful than God. And that's why everything that exalts itself in our life, thought life is called a pretension, she calls it, says. Satan plays make-believe. He can only pretend because he's lost all rights to presume authority over a believer's life because of what Christ has done on the cross. Jesus has set us free from Satan and the thinking in the flesh. He's given us a regenerated mind, replacing the depraved mind that we had before accepting him as Savior. But we still need to guard, and we still need to exercise our regenerated minds. Just because Satan has been defeated does not mean that he will quit his attempts to deceive. The Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. That's said in present tense. So this is still his purpose. This is still his plan. Therefore, we must continue to guard our minds so as not to fall under the wrong thinking in any area of our lives. Beth Mora touched on 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. Paul wrote, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And here's the part that we really want to take hold of. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now you might be wondering, okay, so how do we do this? As followers of Jesus, how do we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? How do we put this joy through right thinking into practice? Well, it all starts with knowing whose mind we have. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, that as believers we have the mind of Christ. While we do not know all things as God knows all things, we can ask in prayer for the Holy Spirit of God to give us guidance, um, to give us insight to know his will, his plans, his purposes. It means seeing and discerning things as the way that God sees them and valuing things the way that God values and loving things that God loves and hating things that God hates. And it's with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's God's understanding um, of, of his holiness and, and sin's awfulness. It's having that worldview that is radically different from citizens and ways of this world. In the first half of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're instructed to not be conformed to the world. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, do not copy the behavior and customs of this world. I think today, more than ever, we need to be careful about what we allow into our minds. As believers, we find ourselves constantly being bombarded by attitudes and beliefs that are totally opposed to the Bible. Television, movies, music, the rest of media, 
they often present sinful lifestyles and unwholesome values as, as not only being permissible and the norm, but as being right. And so we have to be careful about what we allow to form our opinions and our beliefs. The Bible is the only standard of truth. We must evaluate all other opinions in light of what Scripture says, what it teaches. And as believers, we can ask the Holy Spirit to help us discern what is truth. What is opinion? And so as we study the scriptures, the Holy Spirit leads us in developing right thinking on the issues facing our culture today and into the future. Because scripture says that there's nothing new under the sun. And so therefore, biblical principles and, and the truth that, that is held in the word is just as timeless today as it was when it was written and will be in the future. The Bible is the only standard of truth. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. And the second half of Romans chapter 12, verse 2 reads, but let God transform you into the new person by changing the way you think. By changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The New American Standard Bible puts it this way, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This involves us centering our minds, our thinking on exalted things, and then putting them into practice what we've learned from God. What exalted things, you might ask? Well, Paul gives us this list, and, and if you read scripture um, in the New Testament, you'll see that Paul is the king of, of list making, that, that he does that a lot. But he gives us this list further on in the book of Philippians in chapter 4 with verse 8. He writes, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Another translation uh, changes that last sentence a little bit and, and has it posing a, a rhetorical question and saying, if these things are excellent and praiseworthy, think on them. And so it, it puts that on us to, to seek the Holy Spirit to be able to discern what is excellent and praiseworthy. So let's take a few minutes and, and let's define what it is that we're instructed to fix our thoughts on. First, fix your thoughts on what is true. Valid, reliable, and honest, the opposite of false, truth. You know, Pilate asked Jesus just before Jesus was sentenced to death, what is truth? Jesus had already answered the question before Pilate even asked it. When he, it's recorded for us in, in John chapter 18, 37, says, Jesus responded, you say that I'm king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. And of course, we know Jesus is the word. So here is truth. This is what is true. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. 
And what does all this cutting do? It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The word helps us to see whether our thinking is in alignment with God. The word is true. Fix your thoughts on what is true. Next, fix your thoughts on what is honorable. In other words, what is noble, what is worthy of respect. Fix your thoughts on what is right. And right refers to what is upright or just, conformable to God's standards and thus worthy of his approval. We're also to fix fix our thoughts on, on what is pure. And this emphasizes moral purity and includes, in some contexts, the more restricted sense of chaste. Lovely. Fix our thoughts on what is lovely. Relates to what is pleasing, agreeable, or amiable. We're to fix our thoughts on what is admirable. And that denotes what is praiseworthy, attractive, what rings true to the highest standard. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. When we continually center our minds on such thoughts as these, we will put into action living like we have the mind of Christ. Growing up and, and even today, my family is, is really big on gathering around the table for meals and, and whatnot. And it's not uncommon in our household to have three generations. Now, they do not live with us, though, okay? Um, but we have three generations around our table quite often. And I remember growing up um, that um, my family, my parents were, were sticklers about making sure that you eat everything on your plate. They didn't fill our plate, so we were responsible to eat what it was that we put on our plates. And we also had to make sure that we ate all of that before we could move on to dessert. And my family came from a, a lot of big bakers, and so we always had dessert after the meal. But we had to eat the good stuff first because my mom said so, okay? We had to eat the meal because she knew that if we ate the sweets first, there would not be room in our tummies to be able to eat the nutritious stuff that our brains were going to need, our bodies were going to need to grow and to mature. Well, spiritually, we need to fill our minds as well with the good stuff, the right stuff, the stuff that's going to feed our minds and our spirits to grow and mature. Those are the things that Paul's talking about. And so we want to fill our spiritual plate with those things that are, are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Because if we fill our plate with all of those things, there's not going to be room for the things of the world on our plate. It's also going to push out those other things that we don't want on our plate either, like worry and doubt, and fear. And so we want to fill our minds with the things of God, the good stuff. And we do it through prayer, and through praise, and through the word of God. It's how we guard our minds and hearts. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. 
His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. In just those two verses, we see the prayer and we see the praise. And of course, we know that it comes from the word of God. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything. Everything includes our thinking. It helps us to guard our thinking. When we fill our minds with God's stuff through prayer and praise and the word of God, his peace will guard our hearts and our minds as we live in Christ. Remember Satan's plan back from John chapter 10, verse 10? The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Well, Jesus provides us a purpose as well for those who will believe in John chapter 10, verse 10 as well. He says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Total contra- or total opposite of, of Satan's plan. Jesus wants to give us a rich and satisfying life that we can experience joy. And of course, we know that joy is going to affect our thinking and our thinking is going to also affect our joy. So one last thought from Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. We kind of touched on a little bit on 20, and we're going to continue that in, in 21. Paul had written, But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus lives. And he goes on to say, And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Have you ever watched a young child eagerly wait for something? They all they get excited, and they're going like this on their feet, and they're just excited. I remember Pat and I have a number of times, but gone over to the kids' house to watch their two grandsons, Hudson and Jack, six and three now, but... I remember Jack climbing up on a chair and looking out the window, looking for mom, of course, because he's really big on mom yet, um, looking for mom. And, and he would turn and he'd say, well, how long? How much longer? And, and you know, we'd tell him a time and, and he would be eagerly waiting. And the minute he heard that truck coming down the road, his daddy's truck coming down the road, he would crawl back up on the chair and he would stand in the window and just go like this. He was excitedly, eagerly waiting for their return. That's how it should be for us too. As we await the return of Christ. As a new belie- or as a believer this this new life that Christ has given us should have us eagerly waiting for Christ's return, not being in the things of the world, having our minds fixed on the things of Christ. Not thinking about just this life like those that Paul was talking about earlier in our passage today. We should be thinking about the day when he's going to return and take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits on the place of on, at, in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about things of heaven. 
not the things of the earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. As believers, this new life in Christ, the real life that God wants us to experience, transfers our citizenship from this world to citizenship in heaven. It should generate an eagerness for his return. We should enjoy life, yes. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life here. But we need to be on guard so that we don't get wrapped up in this world and it draws us away and into wrong thinking. Our focus should not be on the things of the earth. We want our focus to be on things in heaven. Think about things and we'll have that joy. Joy through right thinking. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? I just want you to consider a a couple of very important questions this morning. Do you know what's on your spiritual passport? Does it say heaven? Or does it say the world? And maybe you're here today and, and this is the first time you even considered that you can have citizenship in heaven while you're here on earth. Maybe you've never heard about having a personal relationship with Jesus because it's a personal relationship with Jesus that transfers our citizenship from this world, from the path of destruction to our citizenship in heaven where life is abundant. And so I just want to give you an opportunity. We've got all everybody's heads are bowed and, and eyes are closed. If you want a a relationship with Jesus, you want your citizenship to be transferred, you want to be able to think on things that are going to be edifying to you and not destructive for you, if that's you today, I just encourage you to just lift your hand a little bit to get my attention. just want to give you an opportunity for that this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions I think for us to consider this morning are as well as, has your thought life changed? If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, has your thought life changed? Are you living like you have the mind of Christ? And then also, Are you daily exercising your mind? Are you guarding your mind by being in the word of God, by filling your spiritual plate with things of God? We don't want to be deceived into believing that it doesn't matter what we fill our minds with. Because what we think has a direct impact on every aspect of our life, both here and for all of eternity. And so we want to make sure that we're filling our minds with the things of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for a relationship with you as our Lord and Savior. Because we know with that relationship that your Holy Spirit comes to help us, to dwell within us, to to help us to discern what is 